Okay. <clears throat> Let's talk about some rust stuff. What did uh What did we talk about last time? We talked about the RFC. Well, the RFC has since uh last time gone into FCP. Um I know that like as a joke, I put that it was an FCP in the the title before, but it actually wasn't. Technically, it was um so there's a stage where the Ling members or whichever team can check boxes. I talked about that. Um and once enough boxes are checked, that's when it's called FCP. Before that, it's just like I guess I think pending FCP is the term that the Lang team uses when they talk about it. Um and Let's see, if you go to rust-lang.zulipchat.com, or you can just Google Rust Zulip. Zulip is Z-U-L-I-P, like, like tulip, but with a Z. Um, and this is the official Rust Zulip, and you can find, um, they're called streams, which is sort of like, it's it's vaguely like a form, but not quite. Like like the interface for how you look at it is kind of weird sometimes. But there's basically threads inside of streams, and each thread um, works like a like a topic in an old style form. And regularly, they will have the Lang team will have uh, their triage meetings on Tuesdays, and at each triage meeting, there's notes. And so you can find the thread for a triage meeting and you can read over um, the notes where they, uh, depending on, you know, whatever's talked about that week, um, there will be commentary about the issue that was discussed or, or the issues. Hopefully they can get to more than one in a single week. Um, and so that's that's where it's called proposed FCPs. Sorry, not pending, proposed. Proposed FCPs is when there are boxes to check, and then actual FCP is once enough boxes have been checked. So that's your update there. Um, what was it? Uh, I believe one had a proposed inline ASM, had some rules relaxed, and it might be a good excuse to touch on that. And then one said, I'd be happy to hear your take on inline ASM. Inline ASM is good. Inline inline assembly is good. Um, some people were really against the idea of inline assembly. They were like, oh no, we'll just use intrinsics. We'll always be able to understand it. But like, if you, if, if Rust has foreign functions at all, then we also have to admit that sometimes there's like foreign assembly basically, right? And um, inline assem could be done through separate assembly files in many cases, but it can't always be done through separate assembly files um, for like just performance reasons um, or possibly correctness reasons. Like you can't always do... Hmm. Actually trying to think about it. I can't off the top of my head 
think of a correctness thing. Actually, I can. So, um, first of all, let's. I'm going to prefix this by saying that there are, there is, there is an assembly language for every single CPU architecture, and my assembly knowledge is primarily limited to assembly as it is used on the Game Boy Advance, which is the ARM V4T architecture. And the later versions of ARM are, you know, extensions of the same thing. So I have a, a general knowledge of ARM assembly because I know about this one specific ARM device. But x86 and x86-64, which is sort of standard desktop PCs, I don't actually know about the assembly there. Like, I look at it in Godbolt sometime, and I'm like, yeah, there's a bunch of letters. You know? There's like, what, 1,400 instructions, 15,000 instructions, 10 million instructions? I don't know. They can range anywhere from like 1 to 7 bytes. You can encode a lot of different types of things into 7 bytes, so I bet there's a lot of instructions. Um, but on the ARM, there is a thing called a software interrupt, which the CPU can deliberately cause an interrupt, which allows an interrupt handler to go do something, right? So um, the the main program can call the BIOS, it can call, scare quotes around the word call, can have the BIOS perform an operation. It's a little different from a function call, but you, the main program can have the BIOS perform an operation for it and then return control back to the main program. And this is done with a specific SWI instruction, which there could be an intrinsic in, say, Rust Core, like Core Arch, ARM, SWI, and then and then you put in a constant there because there are intrinsics um, that can just, like, because they're, in, because they're magically an intrinsic, they can only accept constant arguments or whatever. This happens a lot in the um, x86-64 intrinsics which I know about the intrinsics, just not the rest of their assembly. Um, sometimes an argument to an instruction has to be encoded as what's called an immediate value, where you like you don't pass a value by putting a register as part of the instruction. You like literally write a number straight with the instruction, and that number gets encoded within the bits of the instruction, because like usually only small numbers work. Like, um, like an immediate add instruction, you can you can add two registers or you can add a register and an immediate which say like you have to use one less register to do it so that that helps free up how your registers are working but the the range of immediate values is very very small compared to the range of what can fit when you have a whole register to work with so only certain values and certain note values known at compile time can be done with an immediate value um so in the case of swi software interrupt you have, um, you, so technically there's either 24 bits or 8 bits, depending on if the CPU is running in um, ARM mode or thumb mode, but actually even ARM mode should, is generally uh, told only use uh, 8 of the bits. So you have uh, 256, 8 bits means 256 possibilities. You have 256 different calls that you can ask the BIOS to do, 
and a clever BIOS writer will not, certainly not fill in all of them, is that's not required, but we'll provide a, a few handy routines. And because an SWI is just a certain instruction, it doesn't have to follow a calling convention at all. So on the Game Boy Advance, um, the SWI operations will, um, they'll use R0 and R1. They'll always preserve, sometimes they'll read R2, but they'll preserve R2, and then they'll use R3. And if they use any registers other than that, then they'll like push and pop them and, and save them on their side. So when you call an SWI here, you have this calling convention where uh, 0, 1, and uh, 3 are trashed. Registers 0, 1, and 3 are trashed, no matter what the inputs are. If they're inputs, they might be inputs that are then trashed, but they might not be inputs and they're just trashed anyway. Um, and then R2 is always preserved. Uh, and that doesn't match any, any normal calling convention. So you could just say R2 is trashed and then it would fit with the AAPCS ABI, the, the ARM call procedure. I don't, it's, it's, it's the calling convention that ARM code uses. You could just say that you're going to do that and then link to an external function that performs the SWI. But then, so I guess it is a performance issue. But then also you need to return um, the, the SWIs can return registers, can return values, I should say, um, across not only R0, but sometimes R1 and R3 will have important return values that you could inspect. So you would have to, so say div mod, all right, to give a concrete example, div mod. When you do x div mod y, then you're doing a divide and mode uh, mod operation at the same time. This is not actually more expensive than doing a divide, because if you're doing a divide, then you'll also know what the mod is like right away. Or like you'll, you can figure it out and like, depending on, depending upon the formula that you use, either you know it right away or you can solve it in like one or two additional instructions. So it's essentially free. And the return positions that the SWI on the GBA uses are because again, these are already gonna be trashed are zero and one and three. And there's no way you can tell the compiler that zero and one are both going to be useful values by lying to the compiler and returning, saying that the function returns a U64. Because this is a 32-bit architecture, there's, if you say that there's a U64, it's going to use up two registers. And so if a function returns to, uh, returns a U64, then the caller instead of picking up R0 and using it, it will pick up R0 and R1 and, and consider them to be useful data. But then on the caller side, you have to like take this U64 and know that you're supposed to transmute it into like an array of U32 values. And then the array is gonna be like the high bits will be uh, R1s return value and the low bits are going to be R0's return value. 
but then you'd have no way to capture R3 at all. Like the, the, the calling convention just can't handle it. So yeah, what you could do is in the, in the foreign code that you link to, you provide like a little shim that like you have two ways you, you can call it and get R0 and R1, but you don't get R3. Or you can call a different version, which like copies R3 down to R0 or something. But then, but then you've lost some of your data. You'd have to call it twice. So I guess it's it's not ever a correctness issue, because like you can you can keep having worse and worse code. It's it's just a performance issue. Um, but like the point of the generally the point of intrinsics in the first place is that they increase performance because the compiler like. When you use an intrinsic, you're telling the compiler that you want an operation to like semantically happen and you don't care how it happens. So like if you call, if you have two slices and you call copy from one slice to the other, you don't care if it's a byte by byte copy or if it's a copy, like if, if the slices are both 16 bytes wide and it copies four bytes at a time using U32s or whatever, You'd probably prefer that. Um, you're just telling the compiler, like, make this happen. Um, and that's the advantage of the intrinsics. The reason that we don't have all intrinsics is because uh, that is hard for compiler writers to do. Like, they'd have to be maintaining all the operation of all these intrinsics. Um, and so that's there, there's a trade-off between the utility of intrinsics. And, like, you know, not every operation can necessarily be optimized even if it does exist as an intrinsic, it like providing it as an intrinsic doesn't necessarily let the compiler do anything with that code. Whereas if it's a copy, if there's a copy intrinsic, then the compiler knows, okay, so, it, so X is now a copy of Y, but then they don't use X. So actually I'm not, I'm gonna just cut that entire step. They, they only keep using Y. They made a copy of it for some reason, Maybe they just forgot about it, whatever. I don't care. I'm going to skip this, the copying and then it optimizes out that copy. So we want the compiler to know about things that it can optimize. That's And, and the compiler shouldn't know too much if it can't actually optimize it. Because that's just... You know, you don't want to say... It's, it's like Sheridan says. You don't want to say everything that's true and you don't want to deny everything that's false or you'd just be there all day. Where was I? Inline assembly. I guess let's talk about inline assembly. Please excuse me while I open up the inline assembly reference. Inline assembly Rust. Here we go. Inline assembly and the Rust reference. <clears throat> inline assembly. Support for inline assembly is provided by the ASM exclamation mark and global underscore ASM exclamation mark macros. It can be used to embed handwritten assembly in the assembly output generated by the compiler. Support for inline assembly is stable on the following architectures. x86 and x86-64, ARM, AARCH64, which is hand wobble the 64-bit version of ARM, and uh, RISCV. I think we're supposed to say that RISC-V. I think it's RISC-V is how um, you say that. Uh, risk is going to change everything. You know, that's a line from a movie. If you, if you know that line from that movie, I'm sure you're smiling right now. 
the compiler will emit an error if ASM is used on an unsupported target. Uh, fair enough. Fair enough. Okay, so ASM. We ASM isn't a, is a macro, but unlike many macros that Rust provides, it is not in the prelude. So you have to import it. Use core double colon arch double colon ASM, and then uh, the way AR, ASM works is you say ASM, and then you put one or more string literals. The string literals can contain uh, templating entries. So like you, you put the curly braces. In their example, they have like MOV space and then in curly braces, temp, comma, and then in curly braces, X. Um, and then after the string literals, you can say if you if you don't put a thing in the curly brace you can have positional inputs to the templates similar to string formatting i don't think i would normally advise that you do this unless it's like a single line i think that you i am strongly encouraging you i'm personally encouraging anyone that it writes inline assembly that you should use labeled substitutions where it's like x equals whatever or temp equals whatever i think that that's much better for code clarity not required but much better for code clarity uh and then each thing that you put um it is a oh what's it called oh it's a reg operand reg operand so when you say x equals whatever, after that you put in a reg operand. And a reg operand describes the data flow. I don't I don't know that these words are written down anywhere in the reference article. So I'm and I'm trying not to use any terms that like might already be used elsewhere. So I'm so I'm kind of walking over this carefully. It describes the data flow into the assembly block and then out of the assembly block at the end. So the assembly block begins. Uh, oh, sorry, I should say the, the operand types, you can have input, which uh, the register starts the assembly block with what you describe in the in. Um, the out is a register that will have a value at the end of the assembly block. You can have laid out, which allows flexibility for the compiler. You're going to say, um, uh, this is an output register, but its value will be computed after all of the input registers have been read and used at least once. So you could make an output and input register overlap in this case. Um, you can have in out, which is like the value is going to come in some change will happen. And then the, the output of the value is important. So you have to have to have that and then uh in laid out is the same thing where you're allowed, like like late lets the compiler have a little more flexibility in the uh, assignment and uh so you put in out laid out in out or in laid out and then you put some parentheses and in the parentheses you put um now, what's it called? Okay, you put a register class. And the register class usually 
you can put reg, R-E-G. Um, and like I said, there's like five uh, architectures that we talked about at the very start of the article for what supports inline assembly. They all support reg, which is like a general register. Exactly the details depend upon the architecture, but it's like reg is, is some sort of general register. You can also separate, you can have other types of registers. So on AARch64, there's the X series of registers. Reg means an X register. You can also do VREG, which is the V series of registers. Um, PREG, which is the P registers, et cetera, et cetera. Like, and um, like on X86, you can say XMMREG, which is the XMM registers are for SIMD stuff. If you have some inline assembly that's doing SIMD, you'd need to say like, get, as, as an input, I'm going to be passing this value to the assembly and it will be in an XMM register. And the reason that we want to have all this, oh, sorry, I should say, the register classes are groups of registers or in double quotes, you can name a specific register. Um, if you if you know that the value is going to be in a specific register or is going to be output at a specific register, then you can use the single a specific register. And if in, in that case, you put the value in double quotes because register names can be a lot of different types of things. So, so sort of making it obvious, putting double quotes, we're naming a specific register here. Um, so if you wanted to say the input is going to be an R0, you'd put a double quotes with an R0 inside. And if the input could be any register, you just put reg. Um, R0 does, um, let me see, x86. I think x86 doesn't have an R0. Yeah, they've, they've got R8 through 15, but the ones below eight have like letter names like AXBXCXDXSIDIBP. And then it goes to R, whatever. You know, if I were somebody working at Intel, I'd be like, hey, R0 is a new alias for AX or whatever, you know? That's just me. Let me take a drink. As usual, we've got some uh, coffee with a hefty amount of cream in it. Let's see. So we can have inputs and outputs. After, per after the parentheses, we put um, a Rust expression which is a Rust expression that will be in the register um, that, like, you know, if an in reg is supposed to be some reg, you can put X, and then the variable X is going to be at the input register. Or you could do, like, I think you can do X plus 1 or something. Or you could do, like, like X dot, like, you, if you have a struct, you could put the, the field of a struct. So, like, struct, my, my, my struct dot len or whatever and then you could put a length value as an as an input register it's that sort of thing um i don't remember the allocated register will contain the value of expert at the start of the asm code i don't remember how complicated registers can get you may have to or how complicated uh register expressions can get you may have to like if you have a complicated expression you, you bind it to a to a variable before the assembly block. <coughs> I, I skipped an important step. Um, input registers, the difference to have in registers versus in out registers is that an in register has a value at the start of the assembly block and must have the same value 
at the end of the assembly block. Uh, if you change what the in register's value is during the assembly block, and well, if you change what the in values register is at the end of the assembly block, you can change it during as long as you put it back. You know, you can you can push that register onto the stack, use it for space, and then pop off the stack and have it be the same at the end of the block. But if it changes by the end of the block and you haven't fixed it back up, uh, it will cause UB um, because the compiler is expecting, oh, I'm going to I'm going to show them this value, but they won't change it. And then, and then after the assembly block, the, the compiler may expect that value to continue being the same value in that register for its other computations. So uh, an input register has to say the same. Uh, which is why we have in-out as a separate type of thing. Yeah. Oh, yes. Uh, and there's a thing that isn't a register. You can put a sim. A sim is a symbol. Um, you can put a sim and then a path, which is like... A path is a thing that lets you name an item, I guess. So, like, you can put the name of a function, or you could put, like, crate double colon module double colon uh function whatever like like a, th a thing that goes to um, a function or a static and then what the sim substitutes in is like the the mangled form of that name because like normally uh name mangling is used to prevent name collisions and instead of having to mark a function as no mangle, you can use a sim operator with your inline assembly and then sort of pass in the name of the symbol that way, um, which is cool. Don't get me wrong, very cool. Uh, and there's, there are extra, th like if you're, if you're doing code with relocations and stuff, then it can get, Harry, but I don't I don't do that myself on the Game Boy Advance. Everything is statically located on the Game Boy Advance because you're having to put it into a ROM. And the ROM, everything in the ROM needs to know its address. It's not being dynamically set up by an operating system. Um So after your uh string literals and your assembly operands, you can also have a thing called Options. Oh my gosh, I have to scroll way, 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 way down to get to options. Here we go. The options is a single entry and it goes in parentheses and then you put a series of keywords. Um, normally, the ASM could do practically anything. I don't want to say literally anything. It still has to, like, it can't uh write to memory out of bounds or that that will cause problems but it can do like just about anything and the compiler is having to operate within assuming that it could do anything so like maybe it updates global variables and the compiler will have to if it had a global variables value in a register then it has to write that out do the inline assembly and read that back into a register and that takes time time nobody has and so you can provide options to your inline assembly to say, look, I am promising that my assembly will not do certain types of things. And by promising that to the compiler, the compiler, again, is allowed more flexibility with how it optimizes. So 
For example, uh, there, the first option in the list is pure. The assembly block has no side effects, and its outputs depend only on its direct inputs, meaning the values themselves, not what they point to, or values read from memory, unless the nomam option is also set. This allows the compiler to execute the assembly block fewer times. So, so say you have let x equals some expression, and you have something in a loop, and then you have let x equals some expression, but the expression doesn't depend on any of the loop variables, right? You want the compiler to not actually recompute the same value every pass of the loop. You want it to compute that value once before the loop starts, and then just use it every pass and not compute it every time. Pure is the inline assembly version of that. You're saying, look, if you see that I I call some inline assembly version of div mod, whatever, and I like divide three by two twice in a row, just do it once, and then the second time, don't call it. Or alternately, say we have, say, say we, we div mod three by two, but then it turns out that because of other optimizations, we don't use that value. We don't use the output value. Well, then skip calling the assembly at all. You know, just, just don't even do it because its only use is to compute a value. So if we don't use that value, just skip it. Um, and as, uh, as it mentioned, there's a no mem. Uh, you're not going to touch any memory. Uh, very good very good for the compiler to know. You're not going to touch any memory, so it doesn't have to do... Like, there's a lot less it has to do to prepare to have the inline assembly run. Preserves flags is a great one. Oh, I skipped uh, There's read only. It will read memory but not write to it, so that's cool, whatever. Uh, preserves flags. So the CPU has different... Um, conditions they're called flags they're, they're like little bits inside the cpu they're not associated with like these bits aren't like bits in the address space they're bits inside the cpu separate from the address space um and it's like was the result of the last value zero or negative or whatever like as, as it's doing every time there's a math operation the bits can get set to different configurations and this is how branching works if you like you do, you know, if x equals 0, uh, x equals 2, or whatever. Like, you put that in Rust. So what this turns into assembly is that the value of x is put in a register, and then uh, a compare operation is like you, you, you test 0 and x, and that sets the flags. And then if the flag, like the, the 0 flag, if the 0 flag is set, then some code will run. And if the zero flag isn't set, then you will branch past that code and, and you'll not do it. And uh, generally, you you could expect to have at least those four at least the four flags, uh, zero, negative, um, overflow, uh, if there's a numeric overflow, and, uh, oh gosh, what's the last one? Hmm, what's the fourth flag? Uh, ARAM CPSR? Current program status register in the ARAM manual, yada, yada, yada. Uh, carry! Oh gosh, I forgot about, I can't believe I forgot about carry. Oh boy. Um, so yeah, negative, uh, negative, zero, carry, and overflow are the four bits in, um, an ARM CPU. Intel has similar bits, but generally 
any CPU is going to have, like, not necessarily exactly the same bits, but it's going to similarly have some control bits. Like, the, the Game Boy uh, has some... Uh, Game Boy TM CPU manual. Oh, gosh, this is... The Game Boy has some bits. The processor is described on page 6. Uh, well, um, where are the bits? Oh my gosh. User IO registers, cartridge types. It's not going to tell me. Anyway, the Game Boy, even the, every CPU has some control bits. If, you, if it didn't have control bits, you would not be able, like the control bits let you carry information from one instruction to the next. So you you wouldn't be able to like set up and do control flows if there were no um if there was no control bits. I guess theoretically if you had like a lot of instructions, if you had a really, really complicated instruction set, maybe you wouldn't need bits, but like sounds wild. I I'd have to think about that one. Anyway, preserves flags, tells the compiler Hey, I'm not going to touch the bits. So, like, whatever, whatever you thought was, whatever you thought you had in read in the bits, you can keep having that. And that's so. Say, uh, say you have a block of inline assembly. It's going to do a store multi. There is a ARM instruction that writes out multiple registers to a single address, like multiple registers in a row, all to a single address. That doesn't touch the bits. So, if you make an inline assembly loop that does that over and over, then you would mark the that in an assembly preserves flags. And then it's it's doing the store operation, but the, compu the compiler doesn't have to worry about the flags being messed up during that one operation, and that the rest of the loop's control flow is going to be fine. I'm doing a hand gesture like this. Uh, just, you know, listen, listen to my hand gestures. Um, inline assembly. It's good. The rules for inline assembly. Oh gosh, there's a lot of rules. There's a li there's a list of directives that are expected. So a directive is a thing that you tell the assembler to do regarding the code. And on different platforms, the assembler could be different. So officially, there is a list of supported directives that we expect will work across all the different platforms that we support. And like, if you use a directive not on the list, maybe these particular assembler supports it anyway. But like, if it stops supporting it later, that's not our fault because you're, you were outside the supported list. But if you're using something on the supported list and the assembler doesn't recognize it, then that's our fault, you know, uh, us, the Rust project. I'm not, to be clear, I am not on any team in the Rust project at the moment. I, I, I once was a, an advisor to the Portable SIMD group, but I have... Not that they're bad people. I love them. I love them. I just didn't have the time for that. Um, Caleb keeps plugging away on those PRs all the time. You keep at it, Caleb. Jubilee keeps doing all this research. Jubilee needs, knows more than I'll ever know about floating point stuff. Um... Have we talked enough about an inline assembly? Inline assembly can take a single string literal or it can take a list of string literals. 
and then the list is like concatenated with new lines. This isn't how println works and other, and other like formatting macros, but because inline assembly is expected to be multi-line so often, and it formats a lot better with Rust format if it's like multiple strings, like a comma-separated list of strings. So that's how it ended up working out. I think um, I think it would be cool if in some future edition, Printlin would accept multiple string literals as a comma-separated list. That could be really cool. The advantage of that being that every time you like um, do a printlin, it locks standard out and then does the output and then releases the lock. So if you were able to put a lot of uh, lines to printlin and then it would print them all one after another, it would save on how often you lock and unlock standard in. And that's uh, it's a neat idea, but like, you know, it's fine. And any anybody that's concerned about the performance of how often they can do printlin um, can look up, you know, how standard that works, and then they can. <laughs> so so once you lock it, you have a handle, and the handle I believe works with write anyway. So it's you know it's it's fine. But it'd be cool if it was sort of built in by default, I guess. Um, I think that inline assembly is really cool to try out and you should try it out i don't think that it's a tool that you should be using all the time but like in the same way that it's it's cool to have like a basic understanding of a lot of lower level things even if you're not actually doing it so that sometimes like when stuff goes wrong you want to have at least a vague understanding of where to start, what sort of things, like like who... Like, you look at something and it looks funny, and you're like, oh, I can't even describe the problem. You want to be able to describe the problem a little bit, you know? So, so try out some inline assembly. Write, write a few instructions. Run it on the playground. I think the playground is pretty crash-proof, so, like... Yeah, I'm sure it's fine. Um... And, uh, hmm, I think that's it. I don't think that you should generally be having, like, if you have to use inline assembly all the time, something's really weird. I have, I have a crate for the Game Boy Advance, and I use inline assembly. There's one module of highly optimized inline assembly functions, and there's one module where I have the assembly startup routine, and the assembly interrupt handler. And other than that, the entire rest of the crate does not use inline assembly. Um, and to be clear, like the highly optimized assembly routines that I that I mentioned, those could be written in Rust, they just wouldn't perform as fast because the compiler is not quite as smart as like, like if you're looking at a specific routine, sometimes maybe you can do better than the compiler. Not always, but sometimes you can. This was one of those cases, and so that's why the routine is handwritten assembly. But you don't have to, like even even low level embedded type code actually does not use inline assembly that often. If you do, something is a little bit off. Such as in the case of like the startup routine, um, code has to run before 
you can enter the main function. Like you can't boot the hardware and go straight into the main function because the main function like assumes that the stack that the stack pointer points to a sensible location and that like static variables have been given their proper initial values and stuff. And you can't you can't call Rust code to initialize the environment that allows you to call Rust code. You see you see the dependency problem there. So that's why there has to be a little bit of assembly that does the initial setup. Or if you're you know if you're running on Windows and you, you double click an executable or whatever, Windows does that initial setup for you and then calls the thing. Um inline assembly. Yeah. All right. Uh, uh, I've been talking a while. Let's go to the question bucket. Uh, like I said, I will we'll answer a few questions out of the question bucket. Um, if you want to put a question to the question bucket or you have a request for like what I should talk about, if you can find me on Discord or any other way, that's fine. You can send an email to locathor.rust at gmail.com. Um, you can find me on GitHub, github.com slash locathor, but I don't think that GitHub has a way for you to send a message. So if you have questions, send them to the Gmail. Um, let's see. So spillover questions from last time. Uh, Pood writes, should Rust be taught in school instead of C slash C++? This is a semi-serious question because... Oh, hold on. Let me turn on WordWrap. Uh, um, um, WordWrap settings? Oh, my gosh. Oh, here we go. View WordWrap. Sorry, the line is really long. Uh, should Rust be taught in school instead of C slash C++? This is semi-serious because I don't know how I feel about my time spent in C playing with fire. Yes! I think that Rust should be taught in school along uh, instead of C or C++. Um, C some C programmers like to think that C is programming exactly what the hardware does. This is uh, a lie that they um, might choose to believe anyway, but it's definitely not how it actually works. So if you're not going to be programming exactly how the hardware works anyway, then you might as well be using Rust. Like, assuming that you're using a low-level language that has you managing memory like yourself. Like, it's defensible to just teach people C-sharp or something. But if you're if you're going to be managing memory and doing fiddly stuff like C or C++ would make you do, I think you might as well use Rust instead. I know, increasingly, there are people that do not know C or C++, um, and they know Rust, and they get along fine. Um, there are people that come to Rust from other programming languages. And I even know a few people that don't know any programming languages at all, aside from Rust. And they get along fine. Like, there, there's not some sort of huge skill gap. It's just, like, how much practice has the person had doing different things. It's like, that's it's the same situation. But there's absolutely no reason to keep teaching C and C++ other than... Um, to be able to read older code that's like written in C. Like I think I think people, it's a useful skill to be able to look at C code and figure out what it's doing. Like you should understand the basic syntax of like what's going on with the three parts of a for loop? What's going on with these little stars? Where are they going? All that stuff. But 
new code, don't really need to write in C anymore. Is a language someday going to come along and replace Rust? Yes. But I've already accepted this. Um, let's see. Dan K asks, would you be part of a project where a team of Rust programmers write a program by passing it along from person to person without knowing what the previous person had intended? Dan is making a bit of a joke because he and I are part of a project where we were sharing a save of a video game. Like I did a portion of the video game, saved the game, and then sent the save file to the next person who played a portion and sent it to the next person and so forth. So, so Dan is sort of making a joke there. But on the other hand, that's basically what open source is, right? That's, that's basically what the entire Rust project is like. Um, without knowing what the previous person had intended, we like to think that we're always going to, you know, put notes, have have documentation, have knowledge, institutional knowledge that allows us to maintain these things. But sometimes we don't. Sometimes there's just old source code and you got to kind of figure out what anybody was trying to do based only on what the source code itself says. Or like maybe there's a binary that has been disassembled into like generated source code. Um, so that does happen. Would I uh, want to be on a project or a team of Rust programmers? Something, something, something? Yeah, sure. I like I like doing stuff in the Rust project. I don't personally like PR the Rust project. I don't like add to the compiler. But like interacting with the Rust project is very pleasant. Um, and I think other people should do it too. Um, the RFC uh, creating process has been uh, very nice and with the RFC I recently did. I've already got, I didn't want to do like two RFCs in flight, but once the current one um, finishes out FCP, I've already got a plan for the next RFC, which will, hmm, that's going to be bigger. Um, I'm going to have to write more for that. Like the current one, saying that result gets the optional guarantee, slam dunk. Everybody agrees on that. There's no downsides. Well, there's nearly downsides. There's nearly no downsides. One person didn't want certain result and unwind interactions to potentially be ruled out in the future, but but they weren't, so it's fine. Um. Yeah. If you think you have an idea, you should. Uh, you should help contribute to the Rust project. That's my that's my formal advice. Um, Pood says, with Rust, should I evolve my Pikachu with a stone or keep it as is? Note, I hate Raichu. Uh, if you hate Raichu, don't evolve your Pikachu. Um, Dan K says, question from my sister. And then a colon. So I suppose this is the sister part. Uh, Dan K's sister says, Lokathor, how did you adapt to the concept of ownership and borrowing? And then a parenthetical, I can only trust that this is a Rust-specific question and not just a personal one. Um, yes, yes, yes to Dan K. This is a Rust-specific question, not a personal question about ownership and borrowing. Um, so so my personal history with programming is that I started with um, Java in high school, as many people of my age no doubt did. I was... Um, I'm of the age where the AP computer science test had very recently switched from C++ to being Java. Java was like just starting to, to really, really soar up there. 
Java 1.5 was the new thing. Um, and then I did uh, some Python for a while. I didn't, uh, I didn't like so little editor assistance. I didn't like so little typing and, and just loosey-goosey, like you had to make tests and run your tests all the time just to make anything work at all. Uh, it's ridiculous. So, so I did, I did a little more Java back then. And this is all like us hobby stuff, basically. For one summer, I worked programming Java, but um, just one summer. Uh, so Java, Python, Java again, and then uh, of all things, Haskell. I programmed with uh, Haskell for like two years, and that was really fun. I like I like Haskell quite a bit. Um, and then at one point, what was it? I don't remember why. But I picked up. I think I wanted to like do a roguelike that could maybe be done on an embedded system or something like that, like a Game Boy Advance, or like like put it on a uh, a GameCube or a Raspberry Pi or something. And I'm like, well, we're, we we would need a scenario with much higher performance and much lower runtime overhead than Haskell allows for. Haskell allows for high performance but like has a garbage collector and a, and a runtime going on and stuff. Um, Rust has that minimal runtime that I was looking for at the time. And so I tried out Rust and it is basically cool. You know, Rust basically good. I've, I've been doing it for many years now. So we could say we could call it a successful, successful experimentation. In terms of how I adapted to the concept of ownership and borrowing specifically in, it was, it was difficult. It was difficult at first uh, because what confused me the most is that in Haskell, there is not, uh, there basically isn't automatic coercion and Rust has a limited amount of automatic coercion that really confused me. I didn't understand auto-referencing. So if you have a thing and you call a method on it and the method takes ref self, then calling the method on the thing itself will like, automatically do the reference and then within the method you have the ref self reference and all that i couldn't i didn't understand that that was going on when i first started programming rust imagine imagine programming rust and looking at type errors for like a month before you figure out that auto referencing exists right it was weird um i was constantly like putting extra parentheses and ampersands everywhere and then occasionally I would like mess it up and, and the auto. And the thing is, if you, if you do that, like if you put parentheses, ref X parentheses dot len or whatever to like get the length of a vec that you think you have to put the ref X on the thing, that actually will work um, much of the time because of how uh, the, the, the dot lets you deref the through the reference layers down to the required thing to have the vec-led method work. So it kind of like you could you could accidentally stumble through a fair amount of rust without knowing that auto referencing works. And like if you forget to do it, then it's automatically done. And so like you don't see that you forgot to do it until you try to do it, but you like accidentally make a typo or something. And then it gives you this type error, and the type error looks totally weird, and you're like, I don't understand anything. Also, early on, before the match ergonomics thing was put in, matches were really hard to do, like match expressions. 
Um, lately, uh, I would say I'm pretty fully adapted to it. I have been working with uh, Vulcan, as I've mentioned in the past few episodes, and the safety of my Vulcan interface code relies upon ownership and borrowing um, in a way like it's it's very nice that because of the ownership and borrowing model I can be confident that the code is correct and won't leave me with any dangling memory as I transmute around a bunch of pointers to C strings and stuff like that. So it's very nice. Um, and then occasionally I talk to other people that do not, uh, that program in other languages that don't have a formal ownership and borrowing model that like, like in C, you have to just express in the documentation when a returned punctu- when a returned pointer should be returned by or should be freed by the caller or not. And like where where the ownership passes, you just have to like write it down and none of it's ever checked by the compiler. That sounds like a nightmare. Like you get all the downsides and there's nothing to give you any guidance at all, no compiler guidance. Um so so yeah, adapted adapted well. Let's see. Uh, do you think Pud writes? Do you think Alec Baldwin knows how to code in Rust? If not, why? If so, who taught him? Uh, I'm gonna answer all three of these questions. Uh, do you think Alec Baldwin knows how to code in Rust? No. Um, if not, why? Because I've never heard Alec Baldwin mention programming at all and he's like an actor guy and he's kind of like an older actor guy so i don't think that he's good with computers or like very tech savvy i'm sure he's a fine person just probably not very tech savvy um but if so who taught him definitely adam baldwin who uh seems like the kind of guy who like he's not he's not overtly like a computer guy but like he goes home and he, he knows how to set up all of his like his smart devices at home. He seems like a guy that would live in a home that maybe has some smart devices and be uh, be a little savvy about it, but like you know not bragging about it. That's that's my impression of um, Adam Baldwin as compared to Alec Baldwin. Are they related? I don't know if they're related or if there's just some sort of like Baldwin is a popular name among people that go to Hollywood or what. They don't. They don't look super alike, and like maybe they're close. Maybe they're cousins. I don't know. Um, we don't. F- let's, I don't want to do too many questions. It's fifty-five minutes. We're gonna call that good. Uh, however many questions that was, that's enough question bucket for today. Save the file, close it, and um, as I mentioned before, lookathor.rust at gmail.com. If you want to get your questions in the question bucket, or uh, or anything else. If you if it's if it can be a comment instead of a question, if you want, you can suggest a topic for an episode, for example. Oh, wait. Um, uh, the the releases thing. There's a new Rust release. Um, version 1.68.0. Let's let's go over it real fast. Uh, language stabilized default alloc error handler. That's cool. None of this other stuff is uh, important except in the compiler. They added a Sony Vita tier three target. That's cool. Libraries, uh, whatever, stabilized APIs, 
from bool for f32 and f64 it it's it does the from integer or it does from bool like the integer style from bool where where if false is zero and then one or true is one and and then it just does the floating version of that so so false is 0, 0.0 and true is 1.0 um that's a there, there was a what you might call a controversial uh impl to add some people were against it i'm glad that it was put in uh there's a bunch of other stuff that happened but i'm sure the other two uh restation station guys are going to cover it in one of their episodes so i don't want to like step on their toes and go into the details but i do want to say it's cool that we have a default alec air handler it's cool that we have a sony vita like a homebrew target and it's cool that we have from bool in more places and uh that's it bye everyone mm -hmm.